0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: I distinctly heard it. He muttered under his breath, Jew. You're crazy. No, I'm not. We were walking off the tennis court, and you know he was there, and me and his wife, and he looked at her, and then they both looked at me, and under his breath he said, Jew. Alva, you're a total paranoid. How am I a par... I pick up on those kind of things. You know, I was having lunch with some guys from NBC. So I said, uh, did you eat yet or what? And Tom Christie said, no, Jew. Not did you. Jew eat? Jew? No, not did you eat, but Jew eat? Jew, you get it? Jew eat? Uh, Max. Stop uh, calling me Max. Why, Max? It's a good name for you. Max, you see conspiracies and everything. No, I don't. You know, I was in a record store. Listen to this. So I know there's this big, tall, blonde, crew-cutted guy, and he's looking at me in a funny way and smiling, and he's saying, yes, we have a sale this week on Wagner. Wagner, Max. Wagner. So I know what he's really trying to tell me very significantly. Wagner. All right, Max.
2: 2014. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. Oh, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. the number to call if you want to join our conversation today, or you can write us at feedback at org. Got a lot on our plate today, don't we, Robert? Indeed. I'm going to end up the show with uh, my topic, Happiness is a Warm Sum, based okay. on the old Beatles song that you couldn't make any sense of the words of yesterday. But uh, it's interesting, they're trying to measure happiness, so that's why I say it's a warm sum. I also want to talk about people be- banking on blood, Ontario's blood supply is being controlled by the government and they're not allowing payments. To donors for blood supply, and that, that has some interesting consequences. Also, going to be talking about the Green Party, and I think, Robert, as I understand, you're going to start off with the, the, the rising wave of anti-Semitism. In yeah, the but world. don't forget,
3: we're also going to be talking about Baby Rihanna oh. in, here in London, who and was tragically
2: the killed. The costo I- issue. Yeah. yeah,
3: but that's a, a little later. But you're right; the very first part of, of the show is going to be talking about Jews. Just like our opening clip says. And Mm -hmm. you know something? That a lot of people don't even like using the word Jew. Mm -hmm. Did you notice that? A lot of PC people out there prefer to say, are you a Jewish person? Mm -hmm. You know, rather than, are you a Jew? And I don't understand why that is. Probably is a good reason for it, but I don't understand. As a matter of fact, I don't like, uh, for the life of me, I can't understand anti-Semitism. And yet we're surrounded by it. Where are the roots for such a hatred of a particular race and religion. Don't get it, I really don't. You know, I can somewhat understand the ancient animosity which one tribe may have for another. You know, you're not from my clan type of thing, you're an outsider. You know, that's common in any culture. Isn't it the same then today? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. a lot of that still goes on. Oh, sure. Fear of the outsider is the same as fear of the unknown. You know, bigotry is very common and is practiced by people all over the world. You know, blacks against whites, English against the French, one African tribe against another. You know, these are somewhat primal and irrational fears which are easily overcome by reason in a civilized society such as ours. But today's hatred... For one particular small tribe of people, the Jews, seems to have taken on a life of its own to the point where most animosities, or anti-Semites rather, don't even know the root of their hatred and fear. Historically, in the Christian world, Christians dislike the Jews because, well, unlike Christians, Jews were not forbidden by their religion to charge interest on lending money. It's that simple for a lot of people. So the Jews became the bankers, and therefore, the target of anger, whenever the economy went bad or whenever they had to call on a loan, you know, and said, well, you, we, owe, you, we owed you a 100 shillings. Now you owe us 101, you know, and people took <laughs> umbrage at having to have an extra shilling. I only borrowed 100. You yes, you contracted for 101. It's called interest. Well, Christians weren't allowed to charge that interest. It was called usury. Jews were not forbidden in their religion to do that, and so they became the bankers, and they became the bad guys, just as bankers today are the bad guys. But
2: didn't at the simultaneously, the Jewish people also have a somewhat of a prohibition on them in terms of owning land and property? Oh, and well, those Which prohibitions why they were so results
3: of all of the uh, deep-seated yeah. hatreds and irrationalities, oh, like usury okay. and all that. There's another one I'll get into as well a little later, but um, well, here's another one: all of Jewry is apparently to be held in perpetual guilt for having crucified Jesus. Hmm. Who, by the way, Wh- was a Jew. Yeah, I was just going <laughs> to add that little detail. <laughs> yes. So they killed one of their own, and, uh, and I, now I have to tell Mel him. Gibson's out there saying, you know, the Jews are terrible because they killed our Christ, you know.
2: You know, I was probably close to adult age before I even understood why being raised as a Catholic, right, Jesus was a Jew, not a, not a mm-hmm. Christian or a Christian. I mean, he he was Jesus Christ himself, and yet we didn't call him a Christian, right? No, he wasn't a
3: Christian. He was <laughs> right. the Christ right. and, and a Jew. Um, but you know what? I remember um, Ann Coulter, when she was here, she called, um, or not just when she was here, but she has called Christians perfected Jews oh, right. because the yeah. Jews are waiting for their Messiah to come, and of course, Christians say, well, there he is, but they don't believe him, so... Mm-hmm. Christians are perfected Jews and, well, anyway, it's all a little silly to me. It's all a shell game. Um, let's go back to Adolf Hitler.
2: Oh, boy. Yeah.
3: He blamed the state of the Ger- of, of Germany after World War II on the Jews. An easy scapegoat. They're always an easy scapegoat. As Anti-Semitism was rife in those days, not just in Germany, but all throughout Europe and the Western world here, including in Canada. You know, we wouldn't allow um, boatloads of Jews to... Um, to settle in Mm -hmm. Canada, and they were escaping Nazi Germany. And we wouldn't let them in because of our, Canada's, anti-Semitism. So it was
2: um, de rigueur, as they say, to be anti-Semitic. I think also there was a prevailing attitude. You know, we look back today in horror at at the Nazis and, and Germany of that time, but many people during that period admired them. They weren't the big enemy that we discovered them to be. Well, of course, afterwards, right? They were
3: elected. Yeah, you know, people loved them. That was the whole thing. I mean, they couldn't rise to power like that. Just um, if they were just a bunch of crackpots. Mm-hmm. No, they actually uh, captured the zeitgeist, if you will, of the German people. Their, their anti-Semitism, their hatred of uh, having to pay off reparations for World War One, and that's why they rose to power. Amongst other reasons, of course, which we don't have time to get into. But here is the really strange one. You know, in medieval times, it was thought that Jews used the blood of Christian children in their ceremonies right. to make bread or make their matzah. A completely idiotic belief, not unlike when some Christians accuse some women for being witches.
2: That'd That's be called, where I, I I've never heard it. that before.
3: I've never yeah. ever heard that before. It's called blood libel. Oh,
2: geez.
3: And, and, and this blood libel nonsense, believe it or not, continues to this day. If you go over to, uh, you listen to some of those um, uh, Muslim countries, they speak of blood libel all the time, as if you know Jews are out there killing Jews. By the way, it's um, it's not even kosher to have blood, <laughs> to, to to drink blood or to use blood in cooking. So I mean, it just boggles the mind why anybody would think that um, such a uh, such a nonsense ever happened or is happening
2: today. But well, it's interesting well, you that in know, in in the Catholic service when you're speaking of the body and blood of Christ, Mm -hmm. right? The wine is to represent the blood. Uh, Yes. Right? And I always thought that was a little bit macabre. It is a little bit, isn't it?
3: Anyway, the conflict in Gaza and Israel today is a continuation of the tribal and religious hatred going back hundreds of years, if not thousands. But it's interesting to note how we here in the West, thousands of miles away from this conflict, have taken sides. That's what interests me. On the side of Israel are many Christians, secularists, and the Canadian government, to its credit. Stephen Harper has done well on this area. On the side of Hamas are the major media outlets, the progressives, the liberals, the Democrats, the socialists, in general, the left. The left are major supporters of the Muslim world over Israel, just as the Muslim world was a major ally of Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Their common target is the Jew. With the creation of the state of Israel, the anti-Semites were given a physical target state to aim their hatred at. Very convenient, much as it's going to be very convenient for us to aim our missiles at ISIS whenever it forms its caliphate, if it ever does. And bombing Israel is a daily pastime for Hamas. If we identify the defining characteristics of both sides, we can more easily see why the left sides with Hamas and why the rest of the world... Sides, or the rest of us rather, sides with Israel. Hamas has as its raison d'etre and founding principle the destruction of Israel and the eradication of every single Jew in the Levant. Hamas is a terrorist organization which fires rockets at Israel from hospitals, mosques, and schools. It quite literally hides behind children and women as it fires into Israel. It even kills its own people and parades the bodies before the cameras and blames the death on Israel. Hamas is anti-freedom, anti-choice, anti-reason, anti-capitalist. Israel, on the other hand, is the only open democracy in the Middle East which has as its founding tenant of its political philosophy the rule of law. It is, to um, a much greater extent than any of its neighbors at least, a capitalist country, capitalists to at least the extent we hear in Canada are practicing a mixed economy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's tolerant of other faiths. Having Muslims in its parliament, it allows freedom of speech and of the press, something not to be found in Gaza. So given this picture of two completely different cultures, it's no wonder that the left here in the West has sided with Hamas. The left is anti-Semitic because the Jews are capitalistic. The left sides with the side of violence because the left has always achieved its goals through force. So it sees no difference there. To push the point home, note that the conflict in Gaza and Israel has received a disproportionate amount of press as compared to the genocide of Christians occurring in Syria and Iraq. Anyone on the internet and social media has access to the stomach-churning atrocities perpetrated on Christians in Iraq by the Muslims of ISIS, the rape of children, the torture and beheading of children, the mass murder of Christians who refuse to submit to the religion of peace, The videos and pictures are graphic and only have to be seen once for one to understand the sheer brutality of Islamists in their struggle for a world caliphate. These images and videos will not be shown by the major media outlets, and not just because they're graphic, but because the major media outlets, for the most part, side with the torturers. But this new Holocaust is taking a backseat to the scenes of um, destroying buildings in Gaza. Also unseen are scenes of Israel calling ahead to a hospital in Gaza to make sure that there's no staff or patients there present before they blow up the Hamas terrorist firing from the hospital's windows. That video, by the way, is easily accessible on YouTube. I've said before on this show that I've heard of the conflict in the Middle East every day since I've been born, and it has been my wish to ignore it. But I've come to the realization as I see the people around me here in Canada side with aggressors like Hamas and the Islamists, that the conflict there will come here as long as we don't take a stand for what's right. It's generally accepted that the man on the street of Canada during World War II was not aware of the Nazi death camps, the gassing of the Jews and the scope of the atrocities until after the war. Today, with Instant Media, we have no excuse to ignore the horrors going on in the Middle East and the continued struggle of the Jews to live a life in peace. Israel, for all its faults, is in the right. The Jew, as Tariq Fatah has said, is not my enemy, and nor should he be yours. Now, we're going to end this little segment with a bit of a clip that I discovered online from Archie Bunker's place. Mm-hmm. As, as soon as I was thinking, oh, I going to talking about Jews, and I said, okay, where do I go for a clip about a bigot or anti-Semite? And Archie Bunker came to, uh, came to, to mind. And so I found this little clip. Actually, it's, it's fairly long. It's about six minutes long of Archie Bunker and uh, meeting a rabbi uh, because he had that little Stephanie. I don't really know if you recall uh, the show. He had a little Stephanie uh, enrolled in a synagogue or attending a synagogue. And uh, this is what happened there.
1: Sorry, Mac, we're still closed. Mr. Klein. Rabbi Jacobs, right? Temple Beth Isaiah, right? Guilty. <laughs> Same here. I guess that's part of my heritage, right? <laughs> it's
0: like a cup of coffee? Yes, black. Okay. Oh, well, thank you, Harry. Uh, there you go. Thank you. You bring Stephanie to our Friday night services sometimes, don't you? Oh, you notice me, huh? Oh, yes. You're the one who coughs while I'm speaking.
4: Well, I always get a little voice after a response
0: of greetings. <laughs> Tell me, Rabbi, what are you doing here? Hmm? I'm going around asking people in the neighborhood to help us with a very serious problem we're having. Oh, well, uh, what's the problem? Vandalism. You mean that, that incident
4: in Manhattan?
0: Not just Manhattan. Right here in Queens last week, they defaced Temple Beth Emmett. Three weeks ago, they painted swastikas all over Rottweil Israel. Oh, my God. Oh, this is worse. I could tell you about 20 incidents in the past year. I didn't think things were getting that bad. I'm very frightened about this, Mr. Klein, especially now. Our synagogues are getting some threats, and we've got to do something. Never ends, does it? Join our committee. You've got to help us tell the people in the neighborhood what's going on. We've well, got to stop course, it. Of course, of course. You can count on me. Thank you. Is your partner around? Yeah, he's here. Why? He's the only non-Jewish member of our congregation, and I thought it would be a wonderful idea if we could get him in our committee. Good thought.
4: Forget it. Why?
0: Stephanie's in our shoe. Mari,
5: I think we ought to start this job ourselves. Oh, you finally showed up. Oh, well, don't be drinking coffee. Get to work. Come oh, on, oh, Don't be entertaining the painter. They cost $35 an hour. Mr. Bunker. Well, where's your buckets and your brushes? You call yourself
0: a painter? No, I call myself a rabbi.
4: <laughs> Why
0: do you call yourself a rabbi? Rabbi Jacobs. Temple Beth
5: Isaiah? Oh, yeah, yeah. I met you when I brought the kid around.
0: I I didn't recognize you without the Yamaha. (laughs) I've come to talk to you about something very serious. Mr. Bunker, you are a well-known and well-respected businessman in our community. This is true? And you're not Jewish. This is very true?
1: (laughs) Gosh, there's some anti-Semitic stuff going on. There's vandalism.
5: Oh, b- vandalism? Vandalism, Arch. Swastikas on the walls. Oh, yeah, yeah, somebody was telling me about that. Oh, well, hey, that's just kid stuff. You know what they... Look, hey, the real anti-Jewishness, that's a thing of the past now. You know something? Me and a 463rd bomb group over in Folger, Italy, we took care of the last of them guys. Well, unfortunately,
0: you missed a few.
5: Well, I mean, I know a little prejudice is still floating around, uh, you know, here and there, but uh, there's one thing about the USA. Right. If people are going to be persecuted, they're going to be persecuted, even.
4: <laughs> Will you listen, please?
5: You know that this is a real problem? Why are you building this thing up, huh? I don't see nothing about it in the headlines. And, it and then, anyway, Baba, you know, I ain't Jewish. That's right. That's why I need you to join the committee. You could give us more strength. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. I'm I'm a little bit afraid of committees, you know, and meetings and all of that. Hey, in America, you never know who would be seeing you coming out of a meeting. Hey, fellas. Hiya, Bonnie. Hi, Bonnie. Yeah, what's new? Oh, there's a lot of excitement down there at the temple. At the temple? What's going on? I don't know. There's fire trucks, cops, cars all over the place. Murray and the kid are at the temple. Oh, I, I better get over there right away. Hey, Bonnie, did it look bad? It didn't look good.
0: Rabbi, we've seen a lot of this. Setting fires in trash cans. At least no one was hurt. Well, this time we've got a good chance of catching these guys. Lady got their license number.
4: In the meantime, there are some security measures you can take around here. Here you go, Stan. Why do people do
5: this?
4: Stephanie, we've been trying to find the answer to that for 5,000 years. We haven't found the answer yet.
5: Is it ever going to stop?
4: Sure.
0: They'll stop when we all go away. When we disappear from the face of the earth.
5: I'm not going to do that.
2: Neither am I. You know, Robert, anti-Semitism comes disguised in many forms, and few were more embarrassing than the Green Party of Canada's Elizabeth May defending herself against charges of moral relativism in the pages of the National Post on August 2nd. Her reaction was prompted by a July 31st National Post editorial, The Greens' Foreign Policy Problem. In that editorial, the National Post editors wrote, quote, The Green Party has one fundamental problem. It's not clear why it exists. (laughs) Right? Mm. And we've said that. We've already talked about the history of the Green Party. The editorial goes on to explain how most Green Party domestic policies have already been adopted by one or more of the liberal, conservative, or new democratic parties. But on foreign policy, the Greens stand out from the rest, particularly with their position on Hamas and Israel. Both the liberals and the NDP have joined the conservatives in standing behind Israel in its current conflict with Hamas. For Ms. May, the issue is tricky because many of her most vocal supporters are your leftists who get their news from Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit, whose most viral content tends to portray Israel as the aggressor in every conflict, including the current one, just as you were saying earlier, Robert. (laughs) Afraid to lurch one way or the other on this issue, this is still the National Post, the Greens called for a cessation of hostilities at a convention earlier this month and declared that the party would embrace a posture of engaged neutrality, a morally vacuous phrase when applied to a fight between a Canadian ally and a vicious terrorist group such as Hamas. But not all Green supporters are fans of engaged neutrality. This week, the Green Party president, Paul Estrin, posted a stridently pro-Israel essay entitled, Why Gaza Makes Me Sad, on the party's website. Faced with reports of outrage and some membership resignations, Ms. May responded that Mr. Estrin was merely communicating his own views, not the party's position, and that, I didn't know he felt this way about Gaza. Ms. May's problem is the left's problem. Stand with Israel against terrorism and alienate the veggie potluckers or embrace engaged neutrality and inhabit a la-la land of moral relativism. And that's how that editorial ended. So Elizabeth May responded in her own rebuttal on August 2nd, headlined, The Only Party With Principles, in which she asserted, We are the only party left in Canada that has principles and sticks to them. The conservatives were once thought of as the party of fiscal responsibility, and of course, they're not anymore. I'm just going to rush through this. New Democrats once championed the poor and downtrodden, but now cater to the middle class. The liberals have always been flexible with their principles. They base their positions on opinion polls. The Green Party of Canada, along with Green Parties around the world, stands on six global values, and here they are. One, participatory democracy. Two, social justice. Three, ecological wisdom. Four, nonviolence. Five, sustainability. And six, respect for diversity. In the context of up conflicts around the world, we are anything but moral relativists, she says. The reason I was the only member of Parliament to vote against the continued aerial bombing of Libya in 2011 was that the green principles of nonviolence and the promotion of a culture of peace made voting for the military conflict impossible. In the case of the current Israel-Gaza conflict, it is critical that Canadian foreign policy follow the established principle of international law. It is simply not credible to say that Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's siege of Gaza is legal and meets humanitarian standards as the other three-party leaders do. The death toll among Gaza's civilians provokes the conscience of the world. Hamas is to blame for the provocation, but to imagine that Israel is blameless is untenable, quote. <laughs> I'm thinking, wow, mm-hmm. why not just come out and say you're the devil himself? You know, none of the six global values of the Green Party are either principles or principled. Uh, participatory democracy, that's mob rule, not democracy. Social justice is mob rule, not justice. It's basically from each according to his ability to each according to his need is one form of that injustice. Ecological wisdom is just non-defiable BS. It's not ecological, it's not wise. Dirt before people, stop producing wealth is the wisdom of the ecologist, right? Nonviolence is just another way of saying that you don't believe in the right to self-defense. That's all yep. it means. And so-called respect for diversity is pure evil when elements of that diversity are evil in and of themselves. You can't accept that. May admits that Hamas is to blame for the provocation, yet is too cowardly to admit that the so-called provocation was, in fact, the initiation of violence against which she supposedly is opposed to, against Israel with its constant barrage of rockets. But Israel apparently is not blameless when it acts to defend itself against the provocation. She even goes so far as to say that this action is not legal according to some unnamed principle of international law. From all of this, however, I can conclude that the Green Party is a party of principle, a principle of nihilism and a hatred of life in general. And to add the topping to that, it was when you sent me that email uh, just earlier this week, uh, which I didn't realize you were going to send me. came out of the blue. But, of course, this just happened August 11th, and the headline in the Canadian Jewish News on that day was, Why I'm No Longer President of the Green Party of Canada, written by Paul Estrin, who was just referred to in the National Post article, which was written before this happened. And he is a Jew. Yes, and he says, my name is Paul Estrin. Until August 5th, I was a president of the Green Party of Canada. Sadly, my moderate article criticizing a violent terrorist group could not be tolerated by the majority of the party membership. The article was eventually removed from the website. There was apparently no room within the party for dialogue, but not before some online commenters issued threats about my personal safety. Those comments concern me a great deal. Those who wanted me out and let me be clear, it was a large majority of those who control the party made it as simple as possible. They offered me a choice, an easy resignation where I could get to walk away relatively unscathed or a hard resignation that would, well, let's just say it would have been bad. The resignation was a very difficult decision for me, he writes. Just the idea of leaving, stepping away from something that I had worked so hard for profoundly disturbs me. Now allow me to advance to a second question. Why be president of the Green Party of Canada in the first place? I've always been attracted to the idea of doing what I can to make the world a better place. In my youth, that ideal drew me to the environmental and human rights movements. I joined the Green Party because I wanted to prove to myself that I could make a difference. And for a time, I truly believe I did. As a Jew and one who has supported and continues to support Israel's right to exist, I have long been sensitive to and bothered by the negative one-sidedness of many with whom I have worked and volunteered. My recent experience has elicited comments from many in the Jewish community who tell the same story. They too started out full of hope that they might be able to make a difference when it comes to protecting the environment and furthering human rights. And basically that was the, the essence of his essay. It's much longer. You can ke- you can check it out on www.cjnews.com. As to Paul Estrin himself... I shall defer to Elizabeth's May argument that, as she applied it to Israel, only in this case, it's true. Quote, to imagine that Estrin is blameless is also untenable. As they might say, Estrin was hoisted by his own set of principles. <laughs> he joined the wrong party, which only goes to prove that the Green Party is indeed a party of principles. We'll be back after this break with more. Colonel? Colonel? There's an incoming message. Someone's trying to contact us from the surface fleet. Put them
1: on. If anything happens to my crew, I'm holding you personally responsible. And if any of your gunfire ruptures any bulkheads, you won't even feel the explosion that killed you. You know, you're losing every bit of credibility you had with the Green Movement. I can't believe that you convinced other environmentalists to do this. It's too radical. Unfortunately, I did have to hire a few mercenaries. It's not often Sequest is without her crew. I'm cutting off your access to the UEO computers. I have what I need. The shutdown codes to polluters all over the world. You know, the Crystal Water Act of 26. is useless, Captain. I was in environmental enforcement. I saw the bribes, the payoffs. There was always some reason to let the sludge keep flowing. If you use those shutdown codes, you might as well bomb those plants. It'll take years to put them back online. How many years will it take for the Earth's water system to come back online, Captain? Two billion of our drinking water is already tainted. I agree with your principles. But not my tactics. No! What's going to happen to cities without electricity? What's going to happen in the wintertime when people freeze to death when there's no heating oil? Who's going to feed them when agriculture fails? What else can we do? Corporations have no soul. Earth must find a new way to use her water, Captain. But nobody changes until they're forced to. Oh, And you're that self-appointed force, is that it? Why not? You've had this ship for some time and done nothing. Now it's my turn.
4: I guess... I guess I am a delicate flower.
5: Yes, you are.
4: Take Lenny back. Get her out of here, he's coming.
0: I'm not leaving.
4: You have to protect her now.
0: You're dying. I don't know how to do this, but I know you need it, so.
4: No, get out, get out! You need blood. No, not yours. Look. Not like this. I want to do this. What do you do when the one thing you need to save your life is the one thing that would make life unbearable?
2: That was from the television series Moonlight, which I covered last week on a television review, Robert. And uh, although that was a vampire talking about blood, it sounds very much like the wind government's attitude on Ontario's blood supply in the sense in which it cannot tolerate any private for-profit efforts to increase that supply. It's amazing how they, what they're doing to do against that. More proof that our health is not the priority of the government, but instead its faulty and destructive ideology is what they're protecting. When we talked about you know, increasing the supply of kidneys on a past show. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. We suggested that maybe we should try capitalism, not instead of, but in addition to the current monopoly begging and free voluntary donation system. I don't, you know, why shouldn't anyone be able to say leave their organs in their will and that money from that could go to their estate. So many people die without an estate and it might be something that could at least contribute to that. And when a lot of people are banking on the blood supply for their very survival, conscious attempts to reduce the blood supply are, to me, unconscionable. Ontario to ban payments to blood donors, says the National Post, and written by Maria Babbage in the July 23rd. Edition, And she writes, Ontario plans to join Quebec in banning payments to people for their blood and blood plasma after after a paid plasma clinic in Toronto opened its doors to donors. The Liberals have been trying to prohibit any monetary compensation to people for their blood and plasma, such as reimbursing them for expenses for more than a year. The new bill would ensure the poor aren't exploited and coerced into providing their blood or plasma, said Health Minister Eric Hoskins. You ever hear anything more flimsy? (laughs) The only exceptions would be blood given only for research and emergency collection due to a major catastrophic event, he said. Quote, this decision to prohibit payment for blood and plasma donations will in no way reduce the supply or the availability of blood and blood products for Ontarians, Hoskins said, but it will protect the integrity of our current blood donation system, a system that works, End quote. That's all politicians ever care about is their systems, ever. You never hear them ever care about people. That's right. It's not even on the list, just that system. But this is a system that works, that's true, at maintaining the government's monopoly, single-payer control over the health care system. And while it is important according to the liberals, to ensure the poor aren't exploited or coerced by being paid for their own blood, in research and emergency conditions, it's apparently perfectly okay to exploit and coerce the poor, <laughs> if that's an exception. I mean, if that's coercion and exploitation, then, then that's what it is when, in an emergency too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So how can he, you know, that's an interesting standard of morality, to say the least. The government now plans to, quote, shut down private blood donor clinics in Hamilton, end quote, says the July 23rd London Free Press. And, quotes Hoskins as saying, we're taking steps to avoid the development of a parallel private collection system in Ontario. Peter Epp in the Free Press editorial July 24th correctly concluded that proposed legislation from the Ontario government won't help. He noted that, and this is funny, in late June, Canadian Blood Services issued a plea for summer donations, citing increased traffic accidents and a shortfall of blood supplies. It noted it needs 30,000 appointments a week, but has a shortfall of 1,200. It also noted that 20% of those donors who booked an appointment in recent months never showed up. Canadian Blood Services is an organization chronically short of its objectives. He writes. Even Hoskins admits, "Don't get this: that up to 70 percent of blood products used in Ontario come from foreign sources, and many of those purchased their blood from individuals." So as long as there's a middleman and he's not in the country, then it's okay. That's okay yeah. Oh yeah, it's hypocritical to imply our domestic blood supply would be somehow tainted if Ontario donors were paid while importing much of the total supply from sources that cheerfully pay their donors. He concludes, "Gee, only hypocritical? It's downright immoral. It's unconscionable, and it's very liberal, Robert. That's all I've got to say on that." I know you're getting into a, a rather sensitive issue, something that happened in town while you were away. Tragic, tragic accident of, um,
3: at Costco here in yes. South London where a woman um, backed up into the entrance to the Costco and uh, with tragic results, one uh, six-year-old girl was uh, killed. Uh, the mother was uh, critically hurt um, and, the, uh, and she was pregnant, eight months pregnant. She delivered by a caesarean section, and um, the baby lived for a week, but then unfortunately died. Very tragic, tragic thing. The entire London was in shock over this or some, you know, because it was just a, such a, a senseless waste of life. But what strikes me is a legal issue that came up in this and is brought to my attention by um, Andrew Lawton of uh, AM980. Uh, he wrote a blog and people can find, I'm going to read a part of it, but people can find it on uh, AM980's website from, uh, on Andrew Lawton's blog. And uh, this is what Andrew had to say. For the death of six-year-old Addison Hall, 65-year-old Ruth Berger was charged with one count of criminal negligence causing death. For the death of one-week-old Rhiannon, Bozek, nothing. In the eyes of the law, it is as though Rhiannon never existed. In the eyes of the justice system, she never will. Last week, London police charged Berger with two counts of criminal negligence causing bodily harm for injuries sustained by Dana McKinnon-Bozek, Addison's and Rihanna's mother. While mckinnon Bozak lost two children through this ordeal, the suspect will only see trial for one. While it isn't a stretch to say that one's ability to overcome loss is not necessarily attached to criminal charges... The lack of recognition by the state of Rhiannon speaks volumes about the state of affairs in Canada. Bozek was inhabiting her mother's womb before the crash and only came to see the world after an emergency C-section was performed on her mother. But still, she was delivered alive, which in Canada is supposed to be the deciding factor of personhood. When, uh, where abortion laws are concerned, a fetus has no legal protection prior to delivery, even hours before birth. This isn't a case, however, about abortion. It's a case of a baby whose entire life, only a week, was spent in hospital in critical condition and ultimately succumbed to her injuries. She had a mother, a father, a name, two sisters, and the prayers and love of the community. Now, Andrew goes on, but um, I want to pick up on that point that the charge of criminal negligence causing death was only for the six-year-old and not the one-week-old who died. Now, the question which comes to mind when I hear about the tragic case of Little Rhiannon is, can a person receive justice for an injustice done to them before they had rights? Now, a person, as we've talked about on the show before, Bob, is not born with all of their individual rights, for example, life, liberty, and property. They accrue in sync with maturation. For example, a child of five does not have the right to leave home, buy a car, or enter into contracts. These rights are recognized only when the child reaches the age at which it is competent to do so. When we uh, want to stay up late, or he wants to stay up late, the five-year-old, but his parents put him to bed anyway, they're restricting his liberty. (laughs) Because he has yet to gain the right to govern his movements and behavior. The same is true for an adult who develops dementia, for example. They may find the courts taking away certain rights, even their freedom, for their lack of competency. But what of a child who while still under the guardianship of his parents, is injured in such a way that it adversely affects his life later when he matures. Can he sue the person, for example, in a civil case, um, responsible for the injury, even though it occurred at a time when he was without the right to sue or under the guardianship of somebody else? Say that on the night before his 18th birthday, he's struck by a car and loses his legs. At 17, he's under the guardianship of his parents, but at 18, he has full rights as an adult. When he turns 18, can he successfully sue for for the injury and would charges be laid against an adult rather than a child? You know, of course he can. But back to baby Rhiannon. Although she had no rights as a person-in-law while in utero, I believe that she, as a person in the eyes of the law when she died, should receive justice for what happened to her body while in the womb, i.e., before her rights were actually recognized for the police, not to lay charges of criminal negligence causing death in the case of Rhiannon, I think, is unjust, and I think they should revisit it. And I think we have to understand that rights are something which accrue. It's not a simple matter of, oh, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm five now, I can go out and buy a yeah, car. It's a,
2: it's, it's a difficult issue, and also there's the rights of the parents involved in their interest which gets into the whole abortion issue. very yeah, lot, Which I don't want to get into, no. but there's also civil
3: matters as well. I mean, the child or the baby, even if it died in utero, had a value to the mother. Mm-hmm. And yet, there's no loss. there's no criminal charges on that basis either.
2: You know, it's, it's a sticky issue, and I think that we should address it. Robert, I know you weren't in the city at the time during which this terrible tragedy occurred, but... I have to tell you, I can't recall when so many residents of the City of London so publicly expressed their mutual sorrow for the loss of mm-hmm. these two children outside of a serious crime event, you know. That, that's the only other time I would have seen anything like that. Their reactions of anger and sadness and, and of searching for solutions, you know, that would prevent such future tragedies are little misdirected reactions to dealing with our emotional upset and to give us a feeling that we've done something about it. I've seen a lot of car accidents and many other tragic incidents that occur with children losing their lives all the time. Few ever garner the public attention or reaction the way that this one did. I found myself totally affected by it as well. I was very emotionally affected by the event when I heard about it, and I found it even difficult to explain to myself. I, I was bummed out for a whole day. I've said that on the show before when I started doing this show. If it's about kids, kids yeah, I, 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 <laughs> it just, it, I just can't handle it. Yeah. Any parent couldn't? But I think that the following excerpt from, of all places, an episode of Star Trek Enterprise, I think addresses the sadness and gets right to the heart of the matter as the character Tripp, after expressing his own anger and frustration, takes on the sad task of writing to the parents of his recently deceased young co-worker and friend. Computer, begin recording.
4: Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, by the time you get this, Starfleet will have already told you about Jane. Since I worked so closely with her, I wanted to add my personal condolences. I have to confess I've been putting off writing this for a while. I convinced myself that my duties on Enterprise to precedence. But the truth is, I didn't want to face the fact that someone so young with so much promise could just be gone. But I'm facing it now. I find myself thinking how important she was to me. She was a great engineer. And she was my friend. She won't be forgotten.
5: woman
3: oh yeah
0: yeah he says i only like him best when he's not being himself i think i'm a snob well i think it's hard to date civilians they have jobs we are the job they don't get that
5: i like him i i, I do i just the life he wants to lead dinner parties and real estate ugh, it's so empty to me
0: there's nothing wrong with having money please You know, people just want to live a comfortable life and be happy.
2: Are you happy?
0: Yeah, I am. Because I know myself. I think your problem is, is that you're still two people. You're the cop and the rich girl. And until you can accept where you come from and who you really are, I think it's going to be pretty hard to be happy.
2: interesting discussion on happiness, which is, again, in the news. And, um, you know, happiness... Are you happy, Robert? (laughs) Well, my moods change. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Have you ever been in a down mood and still been able to say that you're happy? I think I have mm, been.
3: I couldn't say that I can. Could. I couldn't say that, no. Cause is it
2: just an emotional up and down, or is happiness something larger than that? Yeah, you know, yeah. the tragic passing of Robin Williams a few days ago generated an entirely different response to his death than the one we just discussed. I heard more than just a few people muse about how Williams, you know, he had it made with respect to his successful career, had an established status in life. At least he was perceived as being happy by the public. A lot of people saw him as a jovial happy kind of person because that was the face he represent he presented right mm-hmm. and you know you might see him being totally manic and totally happy looking but was he really happy Right. I think, you know, you recall when we first mentioned on this show that he would be appearing in a new show called The Crazy Ones, which turned out to be yet another single season TV show that just got canceled this past season. One of our topics passed last week. It was reported that he was doing that show for financial reasons because he needed the money. That's why he went back into uh, television and I suppose knowing those few facts, people could really speculate about what the trigger was that might have pushed him over the edge, but we'll never really know. Depression has been cited as the underlying cause for his action. And again, you know, everybody saw him as a fun and upbeat person to be with. You, you know, I heard all kinds of people say how great he was on the set. He was engaged with people. So a lot of people were probably surprised by that. But what appears to be happiness and sadness... I think what appears to be those things can both be as much a part of the life of a depressed person as as happiness and sadness can be part of an emotionally well-adjusted person's life. Uh, Depression is something else, though it is often equated with the opposite of happiness, and I think that's where it gets kind of confusing. One thing I think is true, that whatever happiness means to any particular individual, I would find it difficult to dispute that happiness is both the standard and the objective against which all other modes of emotional and psychological states are measured. Wouldn't you say? I mean, that that's the standard. That's yeah. what you're aiming for. If you're not that, well, then there's something wrong with you, man. <laughs> right? And uh, I kind of like the definition of happiness that was inferred by our last audio bite. You know, um, until you can accept who you are and where you're from, it's going to be pretty hard to be happy. Because happiness is a state of non-inner conflict. You can't be two people at once, and you can't hold contradictory principles and beliefs at the same time. That'll make you unhappy. You might get some laughs out of it, <laughs> or or, or be even sad, but I don't think you ever be happy. We last discussed this on the show when we focused on a published commentary by National Post's Peter Foster called Gross National Unhappiness, where it was reported that the French were, as a nation, reportedly the most unhappy lot of the bunch. Remember that? Once again, suggestions re- repeatedly keep arising that advocate we should officially measure various national happiness census polls, mostly as a distraction, I think, from the fact that the only real measurable stats one can access are financial and economic, and those aren't looking so good these days, particularly with mounting global government debts and deficits. So I guess I shouldn't be so surprised to learn that a group of British researchers have, according to an August 6th National Post report, created a a mathematical equation <laughs> that they claim can accurately predict moment-to-moment happiness—a rare quantifiable study in the emerging field of happiness research. It says, "Sounds more like junk science to me." Yeah. And apparently, they're saying if you are expecting to be happy, you're setting yourself up for unhappiness. The subhead head of uh, Sarah Boswell's article, "Expecting Happiness," reads: "Equation says happiness is beating expectations." Researchers had 26 participants play a decision-making game in which they made money and lost money. I should note here that it is the quantity of money that's still the objectively measurable thing, okay? Not the happiness. All the while, they were asked, how happy are you right now? (laughs) After each transaction. As they performed their task, participants' neural activity was measured with an MRI to track the brain's release of dopamine, the neurotransmitter active in a risk-reward scenario. From these results, scientists created a computational model in which self-reported happiness was related to recent rewards and expectations. The model was made into an app and tested on 18,000 users via a game called What Makes Me Happy? The app is called The Great Brain Experiment and drew participants from Britain, the United States, Canada, Australia, and other English-speaking European countries. In the game, players won points, not money. The study actually seeks to quantify this happiness rather than study its merits or value in people's lives. An approach the study co-authors hope will make their data useful for policymakers. Here we go; the government's ah. getting in on it, trying to square expectations on the part of constituents with whatever the results may be. So they want to keep them happy, with no matter what disaster they they perpetrate on us. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, You know, whatever else this study may be, it's not about happiness. It's about stimulus and response. I mean, is a dog happy when he gets a reward for fetching a bone? Would you call him happy? No. I I don't think that word applies to animals. They can be contented. I disagree with you. I I think that you can put emotion, human emotion. I hate to anthropomorphize, but I think you can do that. I think that's what you are doing in in an effect, and I think it's a dangerous thing to do. It is, and I agree with that, but hey, I know when a dog's happy. Sorry. you know. (laughs) Uh, Basically, all they've concluded is you're happy if your results meet or or exceed your expectations. So don't expect a lot and you'll be happy. And so no wonder governments like this idea. You know, Rand defined happiness as a successful state of life, a state of non-contradictory joy. Happiness is that state of consciousness which proceeds from the achievement of one's values. That's something an animal cannot do. And it's values that that study immediately dismissed from their study of happiness. You I mean that's something an animal cannot
3: do? An animal
2: values food, affection? Not, well, not in the sense we do. It doesn't know them consciously. It doesn't. It could, it couldn't write a book about its values. It knows... It, it's oh, just because I can't write a book about my values. It's just stimulus and that. response. I don't think it's I'd, about I values. I don't have to disagree, and I think really? we should talk about this later. That might be a good <laughs> subject. But, but here's, here's the point. She says, a morality that dares to tell you to find happiness... Uh, In the renunciation of your happiness, to value the failure of your values is an insolent negation of morality. And this is almost what they're saying, you know, be happy with whatever you got. Always good advice in a sense of don't be depressed and don't let yourself get down. And she says happiness is only possible to a rational man. The man who desires nothing but rational goals, seeks nothing but rational values, and finds joy in rational actions. So I think consider what they've done with this study of happiness. They've openly admitted that they're avoiding the merit or value of happiness in people's lives and so have avoided any rational definition or measurement of happiness. There's no real effort required on the part of the study's participants to find themselves in the happy camp. Happiness without effort isn't True happiness. It can be a contentment. I think happiness, this, is, this comes down to a, an issue of definition, no doubt. Mm. But this study on happiness, I think, as it is presented here, is a complete sham on the face of it. I think it's just another attempt to cash in on taxpayer dollars and to convince the taxpayers that they'll be happy to pay for it. <laughs> right? A lot of that going around. And so I'm not expecting so much out of this so called study, so I guess I'm happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, what a crock of crap. Well, now now I'm happy, and we hope you'll be happy, too, by joining us again next week on our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. For the sake of argument, let's say I have a problem. What would be your plan for addressing it?
0: I'm going to recondition your brain so that the need for completion isn't so overwhelming. Oh. I've come up with a series of exercises to help with your compulsive need for closure.
2: Well, I take issue with the word compulsive.
0: <laughs> All I'm saying is we live in a world where closure isn't always an op- <laughs> <laughs>
2: Shun, okay. <laughs>